Hello and welcome to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. I'm your host, Roman Segal, and in today's episode, I'll be talking about the pharma and biotech supply chain with Dr. Rob Lee, president at the CDMO division of Lubrizol Life Science Health, otherwise known as LLS. Rob has over 30 years of experience in the pharmaceutical R&D space. His areas of expertise include drug delivery, formulation development, analytical sciences, and sterile manufacturing. With a PhD in physical bioorganic chemistry, Rob has published more than three dozen articles, five book chapters, plus holds 11 issued patents and 15 provisional PCT patent applications. He has worked for some major companies in the sector and was appointed president at LLL's Health after 10 years with the business. Hey, Rob, welcome to the show. Hi, Roman. Thank you very much for the invitation to um, do your podcast. Uh, actually, I'm very excited. This is my first podcast. <laughs> very good. Well, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be gentle, I promise. I won't, <laughs> I won't uh, put you on the spot too much. Rob, for anyone that doesn't know you or hasn't come across you before, uh, do you mind just giving uh, the listener a bit of a background of kind of you know where you went to college and, and how you ended up in the sector? And, uh, and feel free to talk about kind of your, your journey to, to where you are today. Sure, I'd be glad to. So um, kind of starting off at the very beginning, I was uh, born in Hawaii, kind of moved around a bit. I only applied to the University of Washington uh, because that was the only school I wanted to go to. My father went there, and at the time, my two brothers and my sister were there, so that was really the only school I wanted to go to. But when I was in high school, I was into music. I was in a, a band. I played guitar, so that's what I wanted to do. And my mom, being very wise, was talking to me about what I should do You know, when I grow up. And so she said, you know, you like math, you like science. Why don't you do something like pharmacy so it made sense so i applied to the uh, pre-pharmacy school and during taking the uh the pre-pharmacy curriculum um i took organic chemistry and that really was eye-opening and that gave me a way to really see the world in a different light and so um, i actually went for my interview to get into the school of pharmacy and they did not accept me. So that was an eye opener. And when, when I called back and I said, you know, wow, what, what happened? And they said, oh, your grades are fine. But in your interview, you said that you want to get a degree in uh, pharmacy, go and get a degree in chemistry, and then go into graduate research. And so they said, you, you do not need a degree in pharmacy. Get a degree in chemistry or biology, then by all means go and do research. So I got a degree in chemistry and biology, did undergraduate research for one of the fathers of bioorganic chemistry, Boris Weinstein. He was really a true mentor of mine. And um, then I ended up going to do my graduate work at UC Santa Barbara for Professor Tom Bruce, who was really one of the key leaders in the area of physical bioorganic chemistry. And that was just a privilege to to work in his lab. The lab was really... um, a very high energy environment. There were not very many postdocs. Uh, a lot of visiting professors, excuse me, there was a lot of postdocs, not very many graduate students, and there were also some visiting professors. So a lot of really cutting edge research going on. And it really was a natural transition for me to go into the pharmaceutical industry because as the postdocs got out of TC's lab and went into industry, a lot of them went to Syntex and other pharmaceutical companies. And 
it was kind of a given that I would go into the pharmaceutical industry. So before I finished my um, dissertation, um, I got calls from um, one of the previous postdocs. They flew me out to uh, Sterling Winthrop in upstate New York for an interview. That was my first real job interview, and it was very interesting. Um, the uh, group up there was very very nice. And they didn't ask me very many questions. They were just selling the company, selling the area. You know, there's a golf league, over thirties, basketball league, fishing, hiking, Boston, et cetera. And, um, they said that they would pick my brains during my, um, seminar, which they did. And right after that, they offered me a job. And so I, I ended up starting my industrial journey at Sterling Winthrop in upstate New York. And how, and how old were you at the time then, just so we can kind of get a get a picture of kind of what stage of your life this was at? You know, I, I kind of got a late start because by the time I started at Sterling, I was I'm close to 30. So um, as an undergrad, I uh, went and got two degrees. And so that took a little bit of time. And when I went to um, Tom Bruce's lab, I got the, the, the lecture and the lecture was, okay, you know, you're really young. Um, you really have to burn the candle at both ends. He, I don't require much just besides the five days, maybe one week, weekend day and a couple of nights a week. And, you know, you have to, you have to put in 60 to 80 hours. And if you can't get out in five years, you're really bad. And, um, so that's what we're looking at. And he was saying, and by the way, you know, when the first thing on your mind in the morning, when you wake up is all right, who's going to scoop me? And the last thing on your mind before you go to sleep should be, what am I going to be doing tomorrow morning? And so, um, the lab was pretty high energy. And so that was, um, that was a very interesting setting. I think my true joy back in graduate school was really being on the very cutting edge of oxygen transfer reactions catalyzed by metalloporphyrins. I think at the time there were literally a handful of people in the world that knew that space better than, you know, people in the lab and just a few other folks out there. And you know, it's, it's, it was such a very specialized field. Looking back, I still derive a lot of pleasure knowing that um, you know, just for that little snippet in time, I was at the pinnacle in the area of oxygen transfer reactions. And I had some great discussions with one of my very good friends, Drajan Ostovich, who had a, a very distinguished career. He's uh, doing um, consulting now, but um, just some really high energy discussions and very in-depth, um, super nerdy discussions at <laughs> two, three in the morning. <laughs> Okay, and then and then, what what was your journey from there? And uh, and you know, my understanding from from my research is you, you had you know you went to some of some bigger bigger companies on your journey as well. Well, Sterling Winthrop was a, a mid-sized company, about um, eight nine thousand people. Then uh, we relocated down to Collegeville from upstate New York, and at the time, Sterling was owned by Eastman Kodak and. Uh, Eastman Kodak decided to divest their um, healthcare business. And so they ended up selling off Eastman Kodak. A bunch of my colleagues went to Sanofi. Another smaller group went to Nicomed. And about 20 of us went to Nanosystems. And Nanosystems was the company that was formed and still owned by Kodak at the time of the divestiture. Uh, and uh, what we were doing was leveraging Kodak's fine particle technology for the formulation of water-insoluble APIs. And so I was given the opportunity at Nanosystems to start the analytical sciences department and did that. We um, worked on a few commercial products, Weiss, Rapimmune, Merck's Amend, um, and uh, a few other compounds. Um, then Elan acquired Nanosystems, and I was given the chance to start Elan Sterile Products Group. 
And that forms the basis of, of some commercial products, injectables such as Invega Sustana and Abilify Montana, um, and also Ryanodex, which is dantrolene sodium. Then after that, in that role, I got the opportunity to work on some joint ventures, and I ended up going to work with some of the um, companies that we had JVs with, including Elytropic Therapeutics, where we were developing a reverse cubic phase lipidic-based drug delivery system called Lyocells, and actually LLS ended up acquiring that IP portfolio and can offer that to our clients. Then um, went to Novavax. I was in charge of pharmaceutical development. We had a technology called micellar nanoparticles and a commercial product called Estrazorb that delivered estradiol transdermally. About 13, 14 years ago, I joined what was Particle Sciences, and we were about 20 some odd people in about 8,000 square feet, and we've been growing ever since. And in September 2015, Lubrizol acquired us. Excellent. And thanks for, thanks for giving uh, the listener and myself that kind of overview of your uh, incredible kind of career journey um, to date. And I'm, I'm interested to know the... You can tell when you speak, Rob, that you have a real passion for science. <laughs> and yet it's it's different from that, I imagine, that kid from Hawaii that was playing the guitar or, or, or whatever your choice of instrument was. Well, I'm just I'm just curious to know where that passion for science came from uh, or was that just developed over time? Well, um, yeah, going back, uh, my father uh, got a BS at the University of Washington in zoology. And my mom, um, my mom's uh, was Japanese, my dad was Korean. And my mom was um, born in Washington State. And my grandfather actually owned a farm in T- Tacoma, Washington. And, you know, unfortunately, during the war, my uncles and my mom were sent to an intern camp. And um, while they're at the intern camp, they had a program that um, the, the U.S recruited a few uh, women from the intern camps to be trained as surgical nurses. And out of all the women in her camp, I think she was one of less than a handful that were selected. And she was trained at uh, St. Mary's um, Nursing School in Rochester, Minnesota. And uh, she ended up um, being a surgical nurse and working at uh, the Mayo Clinic. And so, um, you know, I think given, you know, if, if she grew up in a different age, I think she would have made a fine doctor. I think there was some science going on in the background. Just as a little kid, though, I re- remember just uh, loving math and, and any of the tests I got. A few of them, I actually copied them and, and redid them just to practice. And, and I remember liking biology quite a bit. But um, it's kind of weird. I, I never thought I would end up in, in science. <laughs> and now now you lead a, a pretty substantial business as part of, of Lubrizol. And do you mind just talking a little bit about LLS? And, uh, and, and some people listening might uh, be aware of particle sciences uh, from, you know, from reputation as well. So how does your business kind of fit into the, to the bigger, I suppose, mothership of, of Lubrizol? Uh, absolutely. So um, what we offer, we're a full service chemistry and manufacturing controls providers. So uh, we are considered a a CDMO, contract development and manufacturing organization. We really specialize in complex formulations. um, And those are the things I find near and dear to me, long-acting injectables and implants, uh, sterile or aseptic manufacturing, water and soluble compounds. In fact, probably 90% of the small molecules you work on have issues with low aqueous solubility. 
So we thrive uh, in the area that others find uh, challenging, and and I think that's our, our niche. Um, now we're part of the Berkshire Hathaway family and the uh, Lubrizol Advanced Materials um, Division, and we live within Lubrizol Life Sciences, which has um, polymers and and uh, have products in beauty, cleansing, hand sanitizers. Our, our colleagues and excipients have just been doing an outstanding job helping um, provide materials for hand sanitizers. And, and that sector of the business has been really doing well this year. Well, I can, I can imagine. <laughs> it's, been a, it's been a busy time for, for that part of the business. And you're, you're part of, I suppose, the CDMO division that you look after, Rob. Uh, can you give the listener a little bit, you know, how, how many staff are there now and what, what are your main areas of expertise beyond? Because you're an interesting mix from my research in the sense that you've got, um, you've got a, a, I suppose a, suite, a suite of really interesting capabilities. Is that a fair, a fair um, assumption based on, based on my research? I think so. I th- you know, but uh, we're, we're relatively small. We're about 95 people. We're in about 50,000 square feet. So everything under one roof, we have our formulation services labs, um, analytical services labs, outstanding physical chemical characterization capabilities. We have five clean rooms, four that provide production of materials up through phase two. And we now have our commercial clean rooms, about 3,000 square feet that will provide materials for phase threes and commercial. Uh, on the commercial side, uh, we built the space to be very versatile, uh, multifunctional, geared more towards low volume, high value products. And I think there's you know not very many uh, commercial facilities that are able to uh, supply those types of products. So actually, we had a review building review with FDA, and they were very intrigued and supportive of the uh, intended purpose of our facility. So um, that was uh, quite rewarding. Yeah, I, I imagine so. And, and am I correct in thinking then, I imagine the types of projects that you guys deal with are the more uh, novel um, kind of small volume type of products that are coming through, coming through. Yeah, I think um, we we grew in the complex formulation space, and that's not really by design, but that was just by virtue of the types of clients that were coming towards us. And so our client base ranges from the virtual base startups, the the two folks with the checkbook, to the largest pharma generic biotech companies, to whoever and in between. So what that translates to is we see a lot of different molecules, um, and we cover virtually every route of administration. We see the same problems over and over again. What do our clients want to do? You know. We, we ask for a target product profile, what route of administration, what dose, et cetera. And then we work backwards for what they're looking for and look at our arsenal of drug delivery technologies and see what's a good fit. And I think that's, you know, I, I have the best job in the world for, for myself. I mean, I, I love what I do. Uh, in some cases, I think, you know, we are one of a handful, if not, you know, uh, on one or two fingers of service providers that could help some of our clients, we, we are able to solve some pretty uh, challenging formulation problems. And so that's very rewarding. You know, and unlike some of the drug delivery companies, the platform technology companies I was with, you know, you, you see the world through one lens and that's limiting, you know, one size does not fit all. So with um, LLS, we have an arsenal of drug delivery technologies. So that gives us um, a lot more, um, flexibility with our clients and and our job is to solve problems so 
we don't force fit uh, anyone to use our proprietary technologies, which which is code for we would benefit from royalties and milestones. But that's not necessarily in our clients' best interest. We provide the solutions that um, give them the product that they need. And are you seeing kind of any interesting uh, new types of technology or developments? I suppose from a from a drug development perspective, are you seeing any trends or any changes in the last decade or so? Um, you, know, you mentioned the solubility, you know, the aspect before. Is there anything interesting in terms of more, you're seeing more of one thing and less of another, just out of, out of sheer curiosity? You know, I think um, poorly water soluble compounds continues to be an issue just because of the molecular target. These um, uh, a lot of the, the molecules have low aqueous solubility. So before, when when I was growing up at, in the beginning of my career, um, if that was a big problem and a lot of compounds ended up getting tossed out because people couldn't formulate them. But we see that not as a, a challenge, but more as an opportunity. Um, along the lines of what you're asking for, I think um, more and more um, clients are focusing on patient-centric dosage forms. So something that helps with compliance, with um, reduced to- toxicity, reduced dosing frequency, et cetera. So long-acting injectables, implants, things that just um, improve people's quality of life. It's interesting, very interesting. And, and you know, we can't help but talk about the, um, I suppose, the drug development and the pace of drug development that we've seen uh, in, in the race to get vaccines to the market. And, you know, at time of recording, um, the, the, the Pfizer product has been approved in the UK and is on the, the verge of being approved uh, in the US in incredibly quick time i'm interested to get your perspective rob on on whether you ever imagined a drug would come to market that quickly uh, based on i suppose the issue coming to light at the start of this year to having a an approved drug on the market um i mean you know approved by the mhra at this point in time which is you know a pretty reputable industry body yeah i'd love your perspective on whether you ever thought you would see anything like that as, as kind of part one of the question. But part two is, I'm, I'm also interested to know whether you think that will change drug development in the future and, and set a, a new norm for, I suppose, the pace of drug development. Uh, Raman, I've, I've been thrilled and it's just been an exciting uh, time. And I never did I think a, a drug could be improved this quickly. And, you know, without taking shortcuts, doing the right thing, uh, which is out, you know, incredibly important. And, you know, that's one of the things I, I love about Lubrizol. Lubrizol is very ethical. We do the right thing. And it's it's good to see that um, uh, I see that same mentality with, with the folks that are developing the vaccines. And um, it's just been fantastic. I, I'm just thrilled that they're able to do that and can't wait to, to be in line for vaccine. <laughs> and I do think it is going to change the paradigm. I mean, before, when, when I was growing up, it took years. I mean, uh, w- when I started in industry, there were several of my colleagues that never worked on an approved drug. And that was kind of the mindset back then. Nowadays, you know, speed and uh, being nimble are, are everything, but still the development times are so long. And um, so I think this is absolutely um, going to have a very positive impact on um, overall pharmaceutical de- pharmaceutical development. Do, do you think it's going to lead to, I suppose, clients in the future coming to you at early phase saying, hey, we're trying to get to market, you know, 
next spring? <laughs> is it going to increase pressure on on the I suppose the vendors and CDMOs in in the space? Uh, to a certain extent, I think it's going to potentially um, make people get more um, efficient. You know, and right now, um, a lot of our clients. Um, come to us with really unrealistic expectations. So they come and, and say exactly that. Oh, well, we have a you know, formulation, but it's not optimal yet. Uh, it's a sterile product, aseptic. Uh, can you give us sterile GMP material in, in five months or four months? And, and the answer is no. <laughs> you know, we know how long it takes, but um, also it is going to cause people to really look at um, the current practices and see what you could do to uh, increase efficacies and still provide uh, a safe and effect effective product that the client uh, deserves. You're listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector, the podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. Well, one, one phrase you said before was uh, you, you were talking about, I suppose, uh, when you, you know, being at Louis Bazal and, and seeing things through different lenses. And, and one of those lenses I'm keen to kind of talk about is your journey from being, uh, you know, an exceptional scientist into the leader of, you know, the best part of 100 people in a, in a CDMO business now. And I suppose how that lens has changed from your perspective of, what it's like going on that journey from uh, from bench to boardroom, but also just I suppose the the learning curve that that has required for you to um, go from being you know a solid uh, you know well respected scientist, but actually now I suppose being a business leader within within a a larger organisation. Uh, Raman, I, I still first and foremost think of myself as a scientist. And that's, um, that's what I love. I, I, that's what turns me on. I, I love the, the technical aspect. And my, my current job, though, is really more of a, a um, business development role. I, I get to meet the clients. I talk to just about every client that comes in the door. I hear their uh, problems, what they're trying to accomplish. And um, what I'm able to do is I um, know just about everything we do within the CDMO division. And so um, I'm able to help craft our clients development programs and um it's really um a lot of fun i end up offering quite a bit of free consultation because our sales process is not like we're selling stuff you know our <laughs> excipients or not saying excipients are easy to sell but you know things that are uh, we're, we're not selling um a product we're selling a service and so you know how do you do that it um requires understanding the client's problem uh, or objective and um, convincing the client that, yes, you understand what they're trying to accomplish. You um, have the capabilities to accomplish that uh, and um, get them where, where they need to go. So it's it's a lot of uh, fun. We serve uh, very closely as a part of our clients' development teams. I love that. And uh, you know, you can sense in your, in your voice as well and in the passion that comes through in terms of just, you know, enjoying what you do and that's kind of half the challenges <laughs> of, of any of any career and so I'm you know I know for a fact we have many people that listen uh, to the podcast that have come from uh, scientific backgrounds and might find themselves in uh, you know 
increasingly commercial roles, whether it's project management, account management, sales, even marketing. And I'm I'm interested if you've got any advice for those people in terms of, um, you know, in developing a career in in this space and uh, and and I suppose keeping keeping your powder dry in terms of the science, which is something it sounds like you've done. Is that something that you would advise to people, even if they're going down a more, I suppose, a commercial business path? You know, I think everyone's journey is, is different. Mine just, you know, I uh, honestly never, you know, set out to be a leader per se. I mean, I'm not a strong leader in certain ways, like um, former CEO Mark Minchinick was really a strong personality. Barbara Morgan, my current boss, is outstanding. You know, she's um, super smart, very personable. You, uh, she's got uh, um, just some of the outstanding qualities that you look for in a leader. And, you know, the big one is being able to relate to people and develop that trust. And I think, you know, that's one thing. Trust is huge. I had bosses that were, um, you know, we started off on a really good foot and, and something happened. They kind of morphed and then um, they, I don't know, they, they changed in their role of CEO. And, and um, so it was very challenging to work with people that you, you couldn't trust. So that, that to me is key. I think with, you know, people, um, in um, starting out or early career, I think, you know, never, never stop learning. Um, I'm fairly inquisitive. Um, I think the one thing is to um, embrace stretching, stretch assignments, uh, look at the different areas uh, or assignments as opportunities. Um, you know, at, at Nanosystems, I was given the opportunity to, to start from ground zero in analytical sciences department. And, and I grew that. And then at Elan, a sterile products group. And, and that was a lot of fun. It was a lot of challenging and um, you just learn by doing. And the other thing, as far as, um, you know, learning, I think, um, you know, going back to my days in, in college, uh, in, in school, you tend to learn, uh, you tend to concentrate on learning facts, you know, and um, what I think I learned in graduate school was that kind of pushes you to learn to think. So you, you get the ABCs as an undergrad and some people get it and then they start learning how to think at, you know, when they're kids. But um, in, in grad school, we started, um, one, being able to uh, find information. So, you know, in the olden days, um, in grad school, that was an art. We had to use the, the paper copies of abstracts. Baustein uh, was not, an on, there was no online services. You went there uh, to the library and you spent hours in the library. So that was a skill. Um, ask the right questions, be able to find the data and then synthesize that data into something unique. I think these days, though, what's outstanding is there's so much information. But then on the flip side, there's so much information you have to be able to weed through it and think about, you know, what what is real and, you know, what is really useful. Um, and the key is um, also, I think, um, you know, create your network, develop really strong relationships along the way, your your, your colleagues, your invisible college, um, you know, which is your you know, community of uh, people that you interact with, ideally face-to-face, exchange ideas, be open, you know, don't worry about getting scooped or something. Of course, you have to be within the confidentiality of your organizations, but there's so much information that I could get just from you know, calling someone on the phone. Uh, yeah, I absolutely could not agree with pretty much everything that you've just said there, Rob, in terms of never stop learning and I love what you said there about embracing that kind of stretch and in, into, into new areas and, and building relationships. And one thing I just wanted to rewind back to is you, you started talking about trust and I suppose some of the relationships that you had with uh, your, I suppose, previous bosses. How do you, 
how do you go about that in your role now as as the the president of your company? I suppose in in generating and building on trust with your with your counterparts and your colleagues. What's your what's your methodology for doing that? Other than I suspect just being being yourself and leading by example. Is there anything that you do to make sure that you know you don't go down the path that you've seen previous bosses that you had go down? Um, well, I think you have to really be able to you know, relate to people. You have to listen to people. Um, and um, trust builds over time very slowly. And uh, it, it's very easy to, to crush that. And so you have to be consistent. You have to demonstrate that you are trustworthy. And um, I think it's the little things. Because once you start um, violating that, I think it's um, it's very easy to, to really destroy any trust that you've built to that point. So I'm, I'm, I don't know. I never thought about that, Rama, as far as, you know. Uh, it, it's your own fault, you know, Rob, because you mentioned it, so I had to. <laughs> <laughs> but I, it's, it's, you know what's quite interesting is that final point, you know, is that sense of, you know, just doing the right thing and but actually, you know, being consistent if if, if that was the, the key takeaway there and, and not then violating that by going against you know, what you've done in the past without reason. Or, or I think that's a really interesting uh, point there. I think, I think also intentions, you know, if, if you have good intentions and you're not you know, trying to do something shady, you, you, you always try and do things from, from an ethical perspective. And that's what I really like about um, Lubrizol. I mean, just ethics is really, um, you know, front and foremost, and we have courses on it and it's not just, you know, talk it they they really feel strongly about behaving in an appropriate manner and that was really gratifying to see because you know small little particle sciences that's how we were got uh, brought up too uh, we found that extremely important you know just little things i mean not little things but really observing confidentiality just really um understanding what our clients needed uh, and um just trying to like do the right thing sometimes they're not easy and uh, sometimes they're painful but uh if if you um really um try and live your life you know, how you would want people to treat you um then if things kind of go off the rail and something happens people aren't aren't looking at that going okay what was your motive behind this and that's i think that's a problem when you start um eroding that trust people read into it wrong whereas uh, yeah, um, very negatively whereas you know if you have that trust built you know you could you might get bad at someone, but then you, um, once you understand, you know wh- where they're coming from, and it's not, it's with better intentions in in mind. I think that um, gets you to a better place. Yeah, I think that's a, some some great points there. And one thing I wanted to ask you about: you mentioned music at the start, and um, I'm interested to know what life looks like for you outside of work are you you know reading nature magazine and and delving into scientific publications or do you still <laughs> have that musical uh, i suppose artistic side to your to your personality as well i still love music i don't <clears throat> play as much as i used to for uh, up through oh boy um maybe about eight years ago i was in a band called the relics not not because we were old fogies but because we, <laughs> but we played um classic rock and roll so you know we were playing rolling stones beatles um, a bunch of uh, music from the 80s and 90s and i can't remember the artists and i kind of heard the songs and uh, the band would start playing them like oh yeah i remember that and and so um it was a lot of fun but it was a ton of work you know we'd go out and do gigs at these dive bars from 
10 to 2 in the morning and uh, have to drive an hour to get to the um, where we practice and store our equipment, pack up the van. It was just, it was so uh, cliche-ish. But <laughs> we play and then I get home at 5 o'clock and I remember um, we weren't getting paid much at all. I mean, one one gig, there are five of us. We got $250 and um, that doesn't even pay for my travel or my strings. And, and uh, <laughs> the other guitarist, uh, Tom, was like, wow, we're actually making real money now. We have to start doing this more. I'm like, no. <laughs> once, a, once a month, it's fine. You know, but that, it was so much fun. I, I do want to get back into it. I um, still have all my um, my, my, my babies, uh, electric electric guitars, 12 strings, uh, classical. So each one's a little bit different. And um, when, when life settles down a bit, I would love to um, do some recording and, and get back in um, into a band. That's, that's, it's good to hear. And uh, yeah. And when, when you do get time, that's a, a skill worth continuing because you've probably invested so many hours and so much time and effort in actually learning that craft and, and continuing to, to develop it. And I wanted to ask you if you could go back and give your 25 year old self some advice, what would you say, Rob? Well, uh, I think I could have got to where I am a lot quicker if I, um, um, yeah, I just had a different mentality when I started uh, in industry. I had a grad student mentality. So it's like, okay, you know, just come in uh, a little bit later, just work, uh, as late as it took, so I would spend, you know, late nights in lab sometimes, and um, that's fine for a graduate student. But I really didn't have that work-life balance. I think um, it's be a little bit more focused on what I wanted to do instead of just kind of let things happen to me. But on the other hand, you know, Ramani, it's a, it's a journey. And so, do I regret uh, the path I took? Not necessarily. I mean, early on, I was uh, not necessarily still not necessarily the most professional person, but, you know, back in the uh, nanosystems and Elan days, I remember uh, wearing um, Aloha shirts a lot of times and going in and, and that was not necessarily the appropriate business dress. And it, um, I did recall getting some unusual stares, especially some days when I went in um, and unbeknownst to me, a client would be coming in. So everyone's in their suits and I'm in my Aloha shirt. <laughs> uh, and it so, um, was surprising at some time some points and then you know after a while you do have to grow up and and put on a bit more professional um air <laughs> you know i've got a i've got an interesting or a, amusing story which is the exact opposite of that it was my uh the, i used to work for a cdmo many years ago and my first day on the job uh I, you know i went in with a shirt and tie on you know trying to be all professional and the the di- one of the two directors who pointed me he saw me walking in and he looked at me and said, what the hell are you wearing a shirt and tie? Don't ever wear those. Two, don't wear those ever again. That's not who you are. <laughs> and so I was trying to, to kind of fit in and he was very much like, that's not in with the culture of our business. Our culture is be yourself. And so, yeah, I don't think I've, I think that was 20 years ago. I think I've worn a tie since. So, um, Rob, let me ask you, how, how would your best friend describe you in, in three words? Oh, um, optimistic, um, trustworthy, creative. Very good. I love it. I love how you said the word creative because it's such an underused word in this sector, particularly like with people like yourself who are 
Um, I mean, I mean, the word I would describe you as Rob is humble. <laughs> you you have such an incredible um, array of uh, achievements, and yet you 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 come across, and you are uh, having met you as well. Um, you know, a very very down to earth guy, and uh, yeah, I think I love that you said creative there because I think your passion for problem solving is uh, comes across loud and clear, and it's it's. No surprise to me that clients and your colleagues are like adore you for that for that reason. And the the last couple of minutes, um, uh, kind of I'm conscious of time, and is I just wanted to talk a bit about the kind of trends and and changes you're seeing in in the sector. And it doesn't have to be necessarily COVID related or, or anything like that. Uh, just you know, if for, for those listening, you know, as we kind of come to the back end of 2020, you know, or the start of 2021, depending on when this episode airs, what do you think are there going to be the major trends or changes or shifts that we might see next year and, and even beyond that? I, I think the, the die is cast and more advanced drug delivery technologies are here to stay better for compliance, for client-centric dosage forms, improved safety, performance, they're really the keys to better drugs to um, improve people's quality of life and save people. And, and um, I think um, 505B2's repurposing marketed drugs uh, is um, really a nice strategy there. I think there are a lot of drugs out there that could be used for different indications and they already have uh, proven safety and in some cases need more advanced drug delivery technologies to be able to um, have a better dosage form. And, and along those lines, long-acting injectables, implants. Uh, I think, you know, one thing that really pointed out to me um, was uh, I was getting ready to go to a Gordon conference uh, about five years ago. And um, my right uh, vision started getting a little blurry. So I thought I had some scratches on my glasses. And I looked and it's like, no, it's not my glasses. I went to a you know, local uh, retinal specialist and he said, oh, yeah, branch retinal vein occlusion really okay and um so i was um taking monthly intravitreal injections of lucentis and you know, the first one was really absolutely epic um uh they put in three types of eye drops uh, antiseptic and you know, other uh, other stuff and then um the doctor's telling me okay count down backwards from 10 so I start counting. He goes, oh, no, no, count out loud. So he's got his um, arm on my um, my head. And I said, 10, 9, and about 8, he, like, jabbed my eye. I'm like, oh, crap. And um, so it's funny, though, just the thought of um, getting a needle in your eye. I kept thinking, wow, what happens? You know, what Will things leak out or whatever? Uh, and um, really, your eye doesn't have that many uh, nerves. So it's not that painful. It's just a thought of getting uh, an injection in your eye, but, you know, so Lucentis is once a month, you know, if you have a longer acting dosage form that gives you two or three months, Rama, I tell you, that is huge. I mean, that really improves, uh, your, your life. Uh, if, if you don't have to, or if you could decrease the frequency of dosing, you know, and if you have less invasive dosage forms nasal delivery, and I think nasal is great for certain, um, drugs. So I think as, um, I like, just the trends I see as far as um, clients or um, developers paying more attention to more patient-friendly dosage forms. Um, I think biologics are going to keep wrapping it up. So, you know, how do you deliver biologics? How do you get to really high concentrations and you know, deal with um, issues with viscosity and um, um, other things? Uh, so, 
drug delivery, I think really is going to play a key role in making better products uh, in the future. And then you couple that to um, drug delivery devices. So more, uh, you know, wearable devices, things that might dose um, according to, uh, you know, uh, advanced algorithms or you know, something. I, I think um, there are going to be a lot of um, things that will simplify um, giving people medications. Thanks for sharing. And I think that's a great place to end. Well, it's been a, a great conversation. So thank you for for making the time because I know how busy you are. So thanks for, for coming on as a guest on Molecule to Market. And, and thank you very much. Uh, it's been a pleasure uh, getting to know you over the years. And I really appreciate the um, uh, invitation to come and uh, participate with your uh, podcast. again thanks so much for tuning in to molecule to market we hope you enjoyed today's episode you can find more shows on spotify apple podcast or wherever you like to listen get in touch with us on our website molecule to marketpod.com and follow us on linkedin or twitter and we will see you again next week Molecule to Market is sponsored and funded by Remarketing, an international content, digital, and design agency that helps companies get noticed, raise profile, and generate leads in life sciences.